We need a good priest. But last week we learned that Jesus is not just a good priest, he's a great priest. And not just that he's a great priest, but that he is a great high priest. And there is a distinction about our Lord Jesus that sets him above and beyond all other priests who have ever lived and who live to this very day. And what I want to do right now is either remind you or inform you about the great the, the priesthood that occurred in the Old Testament among God's people. And in, in specific, I want to remind you of the high priest position in the Old Testament among God's old covenant people. The high priest was the chief priest and the supreme religious head of the people of God. He was distinguished from his fellow priests by the clothes that he wore, the duties he performed, and the particular requirements that were placed upon him. Now, the high priest had to have character and conduct that were impeccable. He had to be physically fit and spiritually fit for service. Leviticus 21 tells us that. He then had to be consecrated. He was installed into office by an elaborate seven-day service at the tabernacle and later at the temple. He was cleansed by, listen to this, by bathing and then dressed in the garments and symbols that he had to wear in his ministry. He was then anointed with special oil and sacrifices of sin offering and burnt offering and consecration offering were made for him. And then he was anointed again after that with oil and blood of the sacrifice. At that point, He was sacrificed to serve as a priest and consecrated to offer the sacrifices. He became the Holy One of the Lord, Psalm 106 tells us. Now this high priest in the Old Covenant wore special clothes. These special clothes actually represented the function that he had as a mediator between God and his people. Now over over his pants, he, he had a coat, a girdle, a cap. Uh, The high priest then wore what we often have been perplexed by as an ephod, a two-piece apron reaching to his hips made of royal colors, blue and purple and scarlet. They were sewed with gold thread. By two onyx stones bearing the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, he fastened them to the shoulders of the ephod and he brought the whole nation before the Lord in all of his priestly Acts. Now, over the breastplate, this high priest wore the blue robe of the ephod, and around its hem, listen, were pomegranates, pointing to the, the law of God as sweet and delicious spiritual food, and bells that would ring as he went into the holy place before the Lord so that he would not die. And finally, what I want to tell you here is that on his forehead, the, the high priest wore the holy crown of gold, engraved with the words, holiness to the Lord. He was representing the people, and he was representing God, and what he was doing one time a year was making atonement for the sins of the people that God might accept their gifts and show them his grace. This was the high priest in his dress and in his action, and in his character. And let me read this paragraph to you from Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary. 
the most important responsibility of the high priest was to conduct the service on the Day of Atonement. The tenth day of the seventh month each year, on this day, he alone entered the holy place, behind the veil before God. Having made sacrifice for himself and for the people, he brought the blood into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, which was God's throne. He did this to make atonement for himself and the people for all their sins committed during the year just ended. It is with this particular service that the ministry of Jesus as high priest is compared in the book of Hebrews. And this is what Hebrews tells us specifically, church, is that with all of those priestly services that the high priest uh, um, conducted, year after year, and then decade after decade, what the book of Hebrews tells us is that Jesus replaces that high priesthood. And one of the things that the writer of the Hebrews tells us is that there were many high priests. Why were there many? Because they would often die. They actually would always die at some point. And a new high priest had to be installed. And then when that high priest died, he would then be um, replaced. And then when that high priest died, they would then be replaced all the way to the point where in the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and, and he conducts a high priestly service for us. He intercedes for us on the cross. He mediates for us on the cross and he takes our sins upon himself. And therefore, he transferred his righteousness onto us. He represents God before us, and he represents us before God, and he, in, he enacts that great transaction where we get the righteousness of God, and he takes on our sinfulness. He it performs a perfect, mediatorial, high priestly act. But then what happens in his resurrection, Hebrews tells us that he is the eternal forever high priest who lives to make intercession for us. He never dies. He never ends. He never stops such that our great high priest right now is at the right hand of the Father. He is holy unto the Lord. And in this very moment, at this very hour, he is mediating on our behalf, talking to our Father on our behalf and asking and pleading for our good and our godliness and our holiness and our success and our life that has been set apart here on earth for the glory of God. So when we say in this series in John 17 that Jesus is our great high priest, what we're saying is is he's better than any other priest who's ever lived and who lives now, and he lives to make intercession for us. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 17 where we see this prayer of the, the great high priest. As Tyler did a great job of summarizing verses 1 through 5 for us that we studied last week, we said that Jesus is our great high priest who is supremely committed to two things, the glorification of God and the salvation of sinners. He's passionate about that. And what we said is because Jesus is that, then we should be that. We should prioritize the glory of God. We should prioritize the eternal life of sinners like me and you. And we should pursue a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus because he has made himself available to us in a saving relationship. Now with that, let's go to the second part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. We'll pick it up in verse 6 and go all the way down through 19. Jesus is 
communing with his father before he goes to the cross. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. For they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in Truth. One of the things that I want us to understand in this section of Jesus' prayer is that this is a prayer. This is not a lecture. It's not a teaching and it's not a sermon. And so when Jesus prays, he's not teaching in a lecture format or a sermon format or a, or, or a, or a message format. And so it's not going to find its way like, like this with these really nice, clear headings and he moves from one thing to the next to the next. Jesus prays probably a lot like what you and I pray. We're just talking to the Father and we're expressing our needs and our desires and the issues that are there and the things that God has done and the things that we want God to do and it's all kind of weaved in and out going back and forth from truth to request and from reality to desire. And that makes presenting this in some ways a challenge if I want to present it in a very clear, cogent fashion. And so what I want to do by way of presenting this to you is I want to present it in, in, I guess the structure would be twofold here. If we want to understand the high priestly prayer right here for the disciples, this is how I want us to understand it. I want us to understand his report to the Father and his request to the Father. His report to the Father and his request to the Father. And it won't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will flow in a sense of how Jesus acknowledges things. And so what is happening right now in this? He he is giving a report to his heavenly father about what has been done. And guys, 
Ladies, gentlemen, this is what he's saying. This is what you've done, Father. This is what I've done, and this is what they've done. That's kind of how it goes. This is what you've done. Look down at the text. Just keep your eyes down there, because we'll just walk through this. Here is Jesus' ministry report to his heavenly Father, his holy Father. Beginning in verse 6, he says, this is what you've done. You've gave, you gave me a people from out of the world. You gave them to me. You handed them over to me. You, you chose them, and you created them, and you gave them to me. You had claim on them, and then you gave them to me, verse 6. And then verse 7, you gave me the message, the word that you wanted them to hear. You gave that to me. Verse 8, you sent me on the mission. Apostello, you sent me. I, I was a sent one. You sent me from heaven to them. And then look at it on verse 11. You gave me your name. Now one of the, one of the aspects of this whole uh, text right here is this issue of name. Name. And in the Bible, when, when it talks about the name of someone or the name of the Lord... It's not just talking about the actual title. It's talking about the character and the content and the conduct of the one who bears that name. And so when Jesus says, you gave me your name, and he calls the name of the Father the Holy Father, what he's saying is, is you gave me the holiness of your name and the greatness and the glory and the renown of your name. And so he... There's so much filled up in that concept of the Father giving the name to the Son. And this is what Jesus is saying is, you've given me a people, you, you made claim on them, you gave me the message, you gave me the mission, and you gave, you've given me your name. Now look back up at verse 6. He then gives a report, this is what I've done. Okay, you, you did this, you gave them to me, you sent me on mission, I've borne the name that you've given me, this is what I've done. Verse 6, I've manifested your name. That word manifested, it means to, to reveal, to make known. I've made known your name, Jesus says. I've not hidden your name. I've not squelched your name. But I have let people know that you are the Lord. You are glorious and wonderful and mighty and holy and merciful and gracious and caring and compassionate. I have demonstrated your name by the ministry that I've conducted and by the messages that I have preached. I've manifested your name. Look at verse 8. I've given them the words that you gave me. Verse 14, if you'll look back down at there because I want to see that again. I've given them your word. Okay, so this is what you've done, Father. This is what I've done. I've manifested your name and I've given them your word. Church, I think it's very significant that in this high priestly prayer that Jesus offers on behalf of His disciples, the primary nature of His ministry report is not centered around the miracles that He performed, not centered around the works that He did, not centered around the supernatural things that people were mesmerized by, but it was centered on what? What was it centered on? The Word. The Word. 
Jesus' primary ministry was to bring the very Word of God. Now, in His incarnation, His whole life was a ministry of the Word because His life was a message from God. What He's saying here is, I have given them your Word, the message that you save sinners through Me, the incarnate Word. I just think that's very significant when it comes both to the ministry of Jesus and then the ministry of those who are sent out by Jesus, that it is a ministry of the Word. And so what does Jesus say? And this is what I've done. He said, I've manifested your name. I've given them the words that you gave me. I've given them your Word. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, I've kept them in your name. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost. Jesus is a great keeper of the flock. That's the reason he says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice, and I know them, and not one of them will be lost. Okay, now he says, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That son of destruction is none other than Judas. Judas, who had a heart in his own human responsibility, he had a heart that was not for Jesus, but for himself. Not for the glory of Jesus, but for the glory of Judas. And even the scripture tells us that he was greedy and after his own glory. And so Jesus says, only one has been lost except the one who was the son of destruction, the one who is eternally destroyed and condemned in hell um, as so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Psalm 41.9, David is, is writing out this psalm, which is a messianic psalm in this sense, is that he says, even my friend lifted his hand against me. The one who ate bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And so Jesus says, so Scripture would be fulfilled. The only one that is lost is the son of destruction. But all who were both created by you and chosen by you, I have guarded, I have kept, I have kept watch on, I have kept protection over, I have loved and led and protected them from the evil one. That's what I've done. And then look down at verse 18. What else does Jesus say that he has done? I have sent them into the world. I used the, the original term there, the, the Greek term apostolo, a minute ago, because what is beautiful, where we get our English word apostle is from this verb, apostello. And, and the thing is, is that Jesus sent his disciples into the world just as the Father sent Jesus into the world. Same exact verb. Jesus was a sent one. The apostles are sent one. And by extension, we are sent ones. And just as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus has sent his followers into the world on a mission for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus says, I've sent them into the world. So Jesus says, this is what you've done, Father. You, you gave me a people from out of the world. You, you, you had a claim on them and you've given them to me. You gave me the message. You sent me on the mission and you gave me your name. This is what I've done. I've manifested your name. I've given them the words you gave me. I've kept them in your name. I've guarded them and I've sent them into the world. Final aspect of the report right here is this is what they've done. This is what the disciples have done. Verse 6, again, 
They've kept your word. Look at the end. They've kept your word. And look at verse 7. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. They've understood that my message came from you, is what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 8. They've received your words. They've believed in me. They've embraced me. This idea of receiving and believing is simply this, is that they heard, they believed, they received, and they embraced. So the words that I gave them, Jesus is saying, they didn't disbelieve, they believed. They didn't reject, they received them. They didn't put their, their, their arms length against me, but rather they, they took me in and they believed that I am the Messiah, the one sent from you, and they trust me as their leader and their Lord. That's what Jesus is saying in essence here. But one issue arises if you've got your Bible study glasses on and your understanding of the life of the disciples when Jesus walked the earth. Verse 6 says, they have kept your word. If you think about the lives of Matthew and John and James, and you think about some of the issues that they had, think about Peter himself, they didn't exactly keep every jot and tittle of the Old Testament law, did they? So we have to ask our question, like, what does he mean that they've kept the Word of God? Well, I believe in essence they've kept it in the sense that they kept the message of God. They, they've believed that Jesus is the Christ. I was so helped by J.C. Ryle on this point, I would really like to read this section to you from J.C. Ryle, who lived in the 1800s. He says, These are wonderful words when we consider the character of the eleven men to whom they were applied. How weak was their faith? How slender their knowledge? How shallow their spiritual attainments? How faint their hearts in the hour of danger? I mean, think about what the disciples are about to do right after Jesus prays this prayer. Yet, a very little time after Jesus spoke these words, they all forsook him and fled, and one of them denied him three times with an oath. No one, in short, can read the four Gospels with attention and fail to see that never, listen, never had a great master such weak servants as Jesus. Yet these very weak servants were the men of whom the gracious head of the church speaks here in high and honorable terms. The lesson before us is full of comfort and instruction. It is evident that Jesus sees far more in His believing people than they see in themselves or that others see in them. The least degree of faith is very precious in His sight. Though it be no bigger than a grain of mustard seed, it's a plant of heavenly growth and makes a boundless difference between the possessor of it and the man of the world. Wherever the gracious Savior of sinners sees true faith in Himself, however feeble, He looks with compassion on many infirmities and passes by many defects. It was even so with the eleven disciples. 
They were weak and unstable as water. But they believed and loved their master when millions refused to own him. And the language of him who declared that a cup of cold water given in the name of a disciple should not lose its reward shows clearly that their loyalty was not forgotten. And here's the punchline. The Lord Jesus did not despise the eleven because of their feebleness, but bore with them and saved them to the end because they believed. And He never changes what He did for them. He will do for you. What He did for them, He will do for you. And so I want to encourage you right now that however weak your faith, no matter how unstable your faith, and no matter how unstable your life and the character of it, as you keep believing in the great high priest, the great high priest will always and ever live to make intercession for you because you believe, and in believing, you're keeping his word that he is the great Messiah. Okay, let's look back down. He says, this is what they've done. They've kept your word. They've understood this message. They've believed in me. And then look down at verse 14, kind of the second part of that. He says, they've been hated by the world. Why have they been hated by the world? Because the world hates me. And they're attached to me. And because, and because the world hates me, they also hate my disciples. And this is the thing. They're hated by the world. The world is hostile toward them. The world wants their head like it wants my head. And then listen to what he says in verse 18. He says, But I have sent them into the world, and that they are to be set apart. 18, they've been set apart from the world. Now, this, I think I got the verse wrong. It's actually 16 there. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. The point is this, they are set apart. They have been separated. Now I want you to see something, church. Um, Look up at verse 11. Jesus calls the Father, Holy Father. Hagias is that word for holy there. And then down in verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. That, That verb sanctify is hagiazo. And then down in verse 19, he says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. That's the verb, hagiadzo. And then finally, that they may be sanctified in truth. That's also from hagiadzo. Hagias, hagiadzo, hagiadzo. It's all the same root word in the Greek, which what I mean by telling you that is this is that there is a set-apartness that the Father has, a set-apartness that the Son has, and a set-apartness that all of His disciples have. There is a similarity that each of them possess. We'll talk more about it, but what Jesus is saying is they have been set apart, just as I am set apart. So this is what you've done, this is what I've done, this is what they've done. This is my report before you, O Father, O Holy Father. Now given that, church... Let's look at the request that Jesus makes. This is the petition that he offers up to God based on this report. The first petition that he makes is, keep them in your name. Look down at verse 11 and following. Keep them in your name. 
Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except essentially Judas. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We, we believe in the preservation of the saints. Now, I, I say preservation of the saints rather than perseverance of the saints for verses and statements just like this that Jesus makes. Jesus doesn't pray to the Father and say, Father, I pray that they will hold on tight and hang on as, as hard as they can and grip as tight as they can until they die so that they will walk into the pearly gates and make it by the, the skin of their teeth. That is not the intercessory prayer of Jesus. The intercessory prayer of Jesus from son to father is, Father, keep them. You keep them. It's an imperative request. He, he's, in essence, making this request and saying, you do it, God. I'm not asking them to do it. I'm asking you to do it because you're the one that has the power. You're the one that has the authority. You're the one that has the, the, the ability and the strength to keep them. It's like Charles Spurgeon said, if I could lose my salvation, I would lose it. Okay, the, the son requests the father to keep them in the same manner that the son has kept them all the while that they have believed in his name. I think it was R.C. Sproul that was talking about one time about the nature of God's keeping us, his, his preserving us in the fold, in, in the sheepfold, as it were, of God's flock. And he said it's, it's like a, a dad with his son along a railroad track. And, and if the danger approaches, the the thing that is going to keep the, the three-year-old son safe is not the tightness of the grip that the son has on the father, but the tightness of the grip that the father has on the son. And I will tell you, the thing that's going to keep you in saving faith and eternal life forever is not the tightness of the grip that you have on Him, but the tightness of the grip that He has on you. But the beautiful thing is this, is that the more you lean into that tight grip of the Father on you, the more you see that there are pleasures forevermore at His right hand. The more you understand that there is joy. He prays in this passage right here for their joy, and, and this is what the Son knows. The Son knows that as we take the embrace of the Father on our lives and on our souls, the more we want to lean in and be held by Him and enjoy His embrace and His grip and His love and His protection such that we walk closer and closer to the light that He provides for us. Jesus says, keep them in your name. And then He says, keep them from the evil one in verses 14 to 16. He says, look, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. That, that's not what I'm asking, Father. But what I am asking in verse 15, keep them from the evil one, the arch enemy of yours, the devil himself. Keep them from his effectual temptations. 
Keep them from the sways that He offers to them. Keep them from buying the lies that He's selling to them. Keep them from being being wrapped up in the idols that He offers to them and the false worship that He's going to present before them by way of sex and money and greed and hobbies and all of these things that He's going to offer to them as substitute saviors. Keep them from Him in that way, Jesus is saying. Because they are not like everybody else in the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And this is the truth, church. If you're a believer, if you're a believer today, the fact is is that you once were of the world. Your heart and your life were sourced in the world itself. The devil, the flesh, and the world governed over your heart, over your mind, over your desires, and over your will. And it doesn't matter whether you got saved at age 7 or 17 or 37. I hear a lot of Christians say, well, I don't really have much of a testimony because I... I, I never had a, a real a real sense of rebellion. I never I never was like not a Christian. I never was somebody who didn't believe. I never was somebody who who ever had. Listen, I I can understand that that kind of testimony if you never had an outward life of open rebellion that everybody could see. But this is what I know based on the Word. There is nobody who did not live in rebellion before they came to Christ, because we have hearts that are depraved. Jeremiah seventeen. The Lord says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. And this is what I know. And this is what we talk about in our men's build class. Every heart was looking for significance and control and comfort. And every heart, no matter whether you were 7 or 17 or 37, was trying to find significance and power and glory and comfort in somebody and in something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus prays to the Father and He says, keep them from the evil one because the evil one is going to come to them and offer security and offer power and offer significance and offer comfort in something else, in substitute saviors, in artificial saviors, in artificial things that they can find hope and help and comfort and peace in. And when He does that, If you don't keep them, and if you don't guard them, and if you don't watch over them, they're going to buy those lies. And our great high priest says, don't let that happen, O Father. And you know, there's a sense in which the Word of God is being going out right now, in this very moment. And the Lord Jesus, through His Word and through His Spirit that is appealing to you in your own heart, is saying, don't buy the lie of the evil one today. The evil one is going to offer you comfort. He's going to offer you significance. He's going to offer you glory in other things than Jesus. I'm telling you, church, based upon the authority of the Word and the very message of Jesus, don't believe the evil one. It is a lie wrapped in what looks like the truth. Don't believe it. Lean into God. He wants to keep you and guard you and give you joy forevermore in the presence of Him and in fellowship with Him. The last thing that He prays, that He requests to the Father, is sanctify them in the truth. Verses 17 
through 19. Sanctify them. So he says, keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. There is a lot to say here. This concept of being sanctified means to be set apart. Set apart. I want to go ahead and tell you to be as clear as I I can. I believe, at least in this prayer, this concept of sanctification, this idea of the Father sanctifying His disciples has three elements to it. There is the, the mental, the moral, and the missional element to sanctification. The mental, the moral, and the missional element. And I get the the mental part because Jesus doesn't simply say, sanctify them. He actually gives the means by which they are to be sanctified. What are the means that God's people are going to be sanctified, that they're going to be set apart? The truth. What is the truth? The truth, if you look it up in a a lexicon, it is veritable reality. It is reality. It is what's real, what is right, what is the essence of something. Not the perception, not what people think, not what people feel, but the objective reality of something. That's what truth is. Truth is In God's economy, which is the only economy that matters, truth is authoritative and truth is divine. Truth comes from God. It is sourced in God's character. It is rooted in God's person. When something is true, that means it reflects the character of God. It reflects the person of God. It it reflects the priorities of God. If something is true, it is a reflection of God Himself. And this is what he says in this case. Your word is truth. Oh, let us not buy the lies of the evil one that somehow we can can take the word of God and we can believe some of it and disbelieve other portions of it. That we can prioritize some of it and we can put others on on the shelf and not concern ourselves with it. Listen, from Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Revelation, this word is truth because it comes from God. And so whatever God says in this word is absolute truth. It is authoritative truth. It is righteous truth. It is powerful truth. And I will tell you that if you pull, it's like this is like this like a tapestry right here that's woven tightly together. And if you pull a verse in Genesis and try to pull it out, there is like a thread that runs all the way through and a verse in Revelation crinkles. You you either take the whole truth or you don't take it at all. Because it is God's truth. It is powerful and authoritative. And so whatever God says about the family is the truth about family. Whatever God says about marriage is the truth about marriage. Whatever God says about holiness is the truth about holiness. And whatever God says about wisdom is the truth about wisdom. And Jesus says, sanctify them. Set them apart, O Lord, by the truth. And that's why last week, church, when we talked about how do we apply this high priestly prayer in 17, 1 through 5, we said we've got to commit ourselves to the truth, to hear the preaching of the Word, to read the Word, 
to memorize the Word, to meditate on the Word, to, to, to uh, let it out, to talk to people about the Word because His Word is truth. So he says, sanctify them in the truth. That's, that's the mental part. Listen, this is the reality, is that we've got to think, we've got to read, we've got to absorb the truth of Almighty God for us to be sanctified. Nobody was ever sanctified, who was set apart for God, who did not think on the things of God and press their mind and their heart into the person and work and character and attributes of God. It just doesn't happen. Sanctification does not happen mindlessly. Okay, so that's the, that's the mental part. And then the, the moral part is, is just our, our, our actions, our behavior, our words, our attitudes. That, that, that's the element. Sanctify them in the truth, your word as truth. And just as you sent me into the world, Jesus prays, so I've sent them into the world. And he says, look, they are not of the world, but they are in the world. And by being of the world, it means they're not like the world. They don't have the same priorities that the world has. They don't have the same attitude that the world has. They don't have the same language that the world has. They don't have the same behaviors that the world has. They don't have the same lifestyle that the world has. They're in the world, but they're not of the world because morally, spiritually, they are becoming more and more and more like me who honors you, loves you. That's the whole element of the, really the, Just a great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's in essence what sanctification is. It is you pressing in to a greater love relationship with God and a greater love for your neighbor so that you demonstrate the difference of where you're sourced in and where they're sourced in. That's the the moral component. And then you've got the missional component of, of sanctification. Look back down at the text. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world. Sanctification is not not a process and an act that that the Father does for us so that we can live in isolation to the world until we die or Jesus returns. Sanctification is exactly the opposite. Its intention is for us to mentally be so right and morally be so right so that when we are projected and sent out as arrows into this world, the world can see the set-apartness and the difference of you and I between them. And in seeing what they see in us, it is pointing to the Father who is in heaven and He will call all those whom He has chosen to Himself through our set-apart lives. Mental, moral, missional set-apartness. Now one thing I want to say in verse 19 as a technical note, he says, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is high priestly language. He's saying, I am now as the great high priest I am about to bear the sins of the people. I'm going to bring the sins of the people to you, and I'm going to bear the sins of the people on the cross. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus as our high priest. Not only is he the one who offers the the sin offering, but he's the one who bears the weight of that sin from the Father onto himself. No high priest ever has done that or ever will be able to because he would have to be perfectly and morally Holy, and only Jesus is that. Okay, so let's land this plane right here, and I'll just tell you what what the big idea here is. He is our great high priest who passionately pleads for the protection and purity of his disciples. 
He is our great high priest who passionately pleads for the protection and purity of his disciples. And so this is what I want to call you to right now. If you're taking notes, just keep writing. These are the, these are the three instructions. These are the three applications that I want to give to you right now. This is, how, this is how you should respond this morning. This is how you should respond this week to Jesus as your great high priest. Number one, trust His power. Trust His power. Because Jesus accomplished everything that His Father sent Him to accomplish. Trust Him. He's faithful. He's powerful. He's loyal. He is not only faithful to His Father, He's faithful to me and you. We can trust Jesus. Oh man, we're tempted to distrust Him. We're tempted to disbelieve Him. We're tempted to get in difficult moments relationally, or hard moments financially, or or very trying moments physically when we're struggling with our health and we're tempted not to trust in Jesus. Listen, Jesus is faithful. He's a great high priest who lives to make intercession for us and His intercession is always effectual. Let's trust His power to do His job. Second, Know Jesus' heart. Trust His power. Know His heart. Could I just ask you, as we studied this passage today, this portion of Jesus' prayer, what is the heart of Jesus? The heart of Jesus is for your soul to be preserved and your life to be set apart. That's His passion for you. Man, Trust that. Believe that. Know that. Trust that He's got a good plan for you. Trust that He's got a good heart toward you. Trust that He loves you more than anybody loves you. And He's got great wisdom so that He applies wisdom to His love so that not only does He love you with, a, with a, an effectual love and, and an emotional love, but He loves you with a wise love and a righteous love and He wants what is best for us both here temporally and eternally. Know His heart for you. And finally, embrace His plan. Trust His power, know His heart, and embrace His plan. And what is His plan? His plan is for you to be in the Word. That is, in the truth. To be a person of this book. To love it. To live in it. And ultimately to let it out so that you can be just like He was, sent out into the world, not to be of it, but a missionary to it, that the world might see that God is a great Father, that Jesus is a great priest, and that we can be in His family forever and ever. Let's pray.